thanks, disembodied hot girl voice. This is Two Nerds and a Joke with Robert and Ernie. I'm Ernie. And I am the comic book loving Robert today. Oh, you had to go comic book loving? I wanted to do that. <laughs> I, it stole your line, didn't I? Oh, my thunder. <laughs> well, that's all right. Uh, is it? Is it okay? Are you yeah, going to be all right? It's all right. <laughs> but we have a guest on today. We have some. We have a the Leonardo da Vinci of our time on the show with us. <laughs> ah, nice. I love it. Okay, you got a line back. That's fantastic. Good for you, Ernie. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> we have Gary Phillips, and Gary, I, I can't say what you haven't done. It's easier to say what you haven't done than what you have. But <laughs> you've co-wrote, you've authored, you've put anthologies together all across the comic book genre, seems to have a heavy, and you can correct me, sort of leaning towards the, the noir elements, the darker yeah. stories. Yeah, so tell true. us a little bit about what, you, what you've created, because by reading the page on you, um, you have 18 novels, 9 comics, and 50 short stories. Are those numbers right? But, uh, well, I think over 60 short stories now, but you know, who's counting? Wow, okay. Yeah. How did you decide to do this? Well, I think like a lot of, uh, you know, I'm primarily a crime fiction writer, but uh, I grew up, I mean, I still read comics, but, you know, I grew up reading comics, you know, back in the days of, uh, you know, the early days of Marvel, right? Ditko and, and Kirby, of course, and Gil Kane and and uh, Stanley. In fact, I've just been rereading the, the collected, uh, I guess it's the first uh, 19 issues of uh, of uh, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commando. So it kind of, you know, all, all of that stuff. Anyway, it's always been rattling around in my head. And I think at some point I figured out, well, uh, I think I'd like to tell these stories. I mean, I'm fascinated by these stories, and I think I could tell some of these kinds of stories. And uh, it, it took a little longer still, but eventually I, I got around to uh, publishing my first novel. But that was, I guess maybe that was in 90... It was in 94. Uh, I published my first novel. I had written a couple of short stories before then and had done some other writing, but mostly um, journalistic writing. But I, I always knew that at some point, I always knew, you know, that, that fiction was the thing that I wanted to do. Or crime fiction, I should say, uh, more specifically. Very cool. Crime fiction. Uh, now, I heard you mention a, a title that, like, is near and dear to me, Sergeant Fury. Like... <laughs> I loved that as a kid. Like I used to have them all the time. Now I'm I'm a military brat, so that kind of hit kind of oh, close right. to me. Uh, but uh, my question to you is like, when you read those comics, like what what like emotions do those type of comics? Because like it's like everyone's all enamored with like thinking comic books are just solely about superheroes and things like that. But then you have this story here. Can you tell me about that kind of relationship you had with that? Well, I think Ernie. I think uh, it's so funny now. You know. Uh, realizing the kind of um, arc, I think that even even Stanley, because you, when you read the early Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, I mean, it's really, I mean, they're they're crazy, man. I mean, they they managed to you know essentially blow up some military base in the in the, in the space of like ten pages, which of course you know this would take <laughs> you know weeks and weeks of trying to do, let alone a crack commando squad of seven, because eventually Junior. Uh, Juniper gets killed. Uh, 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 you know, crack commando squad of seven guys managed to sneak in behind enemy lines and do this stuff. So they, you know, they were just like, these fantastic stories. But certainly as a kid, you know, they 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 captured you and captivated you. And and of course, you know, as I said, you know, it was uh, uh, 
Jack Kirby drawing this stuff uh, and, and, and just this, you know, the outsized way that, you know, obviously Kirby stuff lent, lent itself to the superhero genre, but even in the quote unquote, you know, civilian dress uh, uh, of, of uh, the army, it was still just, you know, everything was dynamic. Everything had movement. Every panel was like, you know, supercharged. And so of course it just, it, it, so now rereading it again, it just kind of brings you back uh, to all that. But it also tells you, it also informs, uh, and I think this is the real thing. It also informs me as a storyteller that that whole thing about, not, you know, not, every, not everything has to be slam bang. Don't, don't get me wrong. But because even then, even at some point, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos got to be much more introspective, got to be much more uh, character centered as opposed to, you know, these fantastic, huge plots. Uh, but but it, it does show you that that there are these elements that you need to uh, to embody, to control, uh, to put down on the page, whether it's visually or by words or, you know, a combination thereof in, in terms of how you want to communicate you know, to the reader and keep the reader's attention. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't always have to be a bunch of explosions, but it has to be something that, you know, is going to get them um, turning the page. So crime, so, so when you started deciding, okay, I want to get into this world of crime, crime comics, crime anthologies, things like that, was there a particular type of, all right, this is going to inspire me to write it. This is where I'm going to get my stories from my ideas. Or did you just decide that I'm going to come up with all original stuff? It's all going to be me. Or were things like this Nick Fury, or other things like it, or Batman, or whoever it is, great detectives of the past? Where did you get that inspiration when you first started, and did oh, that change? Over time? Oh, for sure, uh, Robert. I think you know. Um, I think any writer will tell you, you know, they're not only a product of their uh, environment, their upbringing, uh, and, and maybe traumatic experiences that happened to them along the way. But of course, it's also what you read. So, when, you know, when I was a kid, I read a combination of things. I read a lot of comics. Uh, the Doc Savage uh, pulps were, be, were being, uh, by the time I got to high school, I was playing football. But the Doc Savage uh, with those great James Bama covers were getting, uh, you know, republished. Uh, so this would have been the 70s. Getting republished by uh, Bantam, and, and those caught my attention because I had never heard of Doc Savage. Uh, but then I, you know, devoured those, and then I, of course, then I stumbled onto the Shadow, um, and then um, Dashiell Hammett, of course, really the the father of the modern detective novel, Raymond Chandler, uh, and then uh, some uh, what might be considered the more uh, subculture uh, writers, uh, guys like Donald Goins. Who himself had been like a dope fiend uh, and a and a and a thief and, and kind of wrote and wrote about that as well as then uh, uh, Iceberg Slim, who had been something of a of a successful pimp in the fifties, but then uh, turned to uh, writing. Uh, and so those guys' books you could find um, they were actually from a small press publisher here in L.A. And anyway, so I, all that com- all those combinations of of uh, material I think was always um, in my head, and and I think always then was pushing me toward uh, the notion of you know taking taking that material as kind of um, inspiration, right? But also then understanding that I had to had to build uh, from uh, my experiences and from my knowledge and from my friends uh, in creating the stories I wanted to, wanted to create. 
So you say your your knowledge and your friends. So do you have a lot of elements of what you write about in your life that you kind of yeah you got these stories from the past of of these other authors and these other creative you know pulp pulp fiction pulp you know fantasy right. pulp crime novels. But in your own life, did you have a lot of influence there? You say you have friends in scenarios that came up in in that world of crime and that world of kind of the the underbelly. So did that have a lot to do with it? Well, to some extent. I mean, you know, I came of age in uh, in South Central L.A. So at that point, you know, uh, it, it, the demographics have changed greatly now. But in, in those days, South Central was mostly working class black folks. Uh, a lot of black folks who had been transplanted from the South, like my dad and my mom. And so I, when I heard stories from my own dad's childhood uh, about his, his, he grew up pretty, pretty poor. And, and pretty rough in uh, Texas. And so I heard those stories. Uh, some friends of mine, uh, you know, did not walk the straight path and uh, wound up going to prison. Some friends of mine wound up being, uh, you know, professionals, uh, doc- doctors and lawyers. So I think it was always a, um, an interesting mix of uh, people that I knew coming up, as well as people I, you know, hung out with in school. Uh, who didn't necessarily come from my neighborhood, but came from other neighborhoods. And I think um, the writer is always the sponge, right? Or you're always, uh, I guess you're always really the archaeologist. You're always there to observe and to dig and dig below the surface and to hear these stories and to, and to keep them in your mind. And, and you kind of reconfigure them and you, re, uh, you, know, you redo them as you put them on the page, right? Uh, you know, uh, what is it, the, the old dragnet line about, you know, the names have been changed to protect the innocent or maybe it's to protect the guilty. Uh, but, but, not, but nonetheless, these are stories, these are people that have um, had an influence on you, uh, and again, as, as, a, as a storyteller. But also, you know, but also it's the case that, you know, watching those old reruns of uh, Rod Serling's, uh, you know, the original Twilight Zone had an effect on me too. And the, the, the idea that you could take kind of um, social political commentary, but weave it into the context of entertainment, of, of sci-fi and fantasy. Um, you know, I just found that fascinating. Yeah, that, that brings up uh, something. And I was going to name drop also. Uh, I was listening to, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Bernardin over there in L.A.? No. Uh-uh. Uh, he, uh, he did some writing for the uh, L.A. Times. He did a lot of their, um, their movie reviews and things like that. Uh, yeah. but I, he went on and he, I think he also developed uh, Castle Rock and Hulu with Stephen King. Yes. Okay. Uh, he was talking about that whole Rod Serling style of storytelling and talking about like, and one of the quotes which, which always stuck with me is the best stories are always allegorical. Like yeah. they always have some sort of meaning. Like sci-fi movies, always, always the best ones are always allegorical. Do you subscribe to that or are you just purely – pulling on like let me just tell like a really good story you know i, I well that's that's a good that's a real good uh point uh ernie i I, th- I think i would agree with that and i i certainly think you know as we as we know you know uh, people who are fans of uh you know the original uh, star trek um you know that certainly proved that through that that axiom that you could tell these, uh, you could tell an entertaining story. You could still have this great character interplay. You could still have these the things that you need to make the story work. But you could also at times have them be, uh, you know, be.
be symbolic, be representational of something else, of a, of a kind of universal truth. And, and it's not to say that every story has to be that, right? Uh, I certainly write, you know, my share of what's been called new pulp and, and uh, you know, and sort of slam bang uh, adventures in that regard. But it's also the case that, you know, there are times when you, we slow things down and you do have a little char- more character introspection or you might have, um, you know, an incident uh, that happens in a story, but has a bigger meaning or it has a more uh, uh, universal meaning to, to, again, use that word than just, you know, what, what happens on uh, in that particular story. Uh, you know, the Trek episode where, was it the Frank, Frank Gorshin, I think is is Lou Antonio or, you know, the two guys, one guy's black on one side and white on the other side, the other guy's the reverse of that. But yet somehow or another, they have this incredible, you know, warring that's been going on forever today, you know, so stuff. Yeah. So, so I think things like that are, 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 can't, I think you can, I think you can serve uh, both kinds of uh, concepts, uh, but in the end, I think you can't hit the audience over the head with it. You can't, if it's going to be preachy, then you might as well just write an essay, right? Or just write, you know, some kind of nonfiction tract, uh, if that's what you want to do. But if you're going to, if you're going to use fiction, then you got to use fiction and you got to use all the tools to make it compelling, to make it, uh, resonate, you know, with, uh, with, uh, the audience you're trying to reach. Well, and I like that because you mentioned the hitting over the head, and I really feel that recently with a lot of mainstream stuff, it has become kind of a bashing people over the head with these you know, ideas or minority or whatever it might be in these controversial topics, and they're bashing people over head with an opinion or a viewpoint or see, see, see here it is, mm-hmm. and I like the way – you're kind of talking about it as it is a story. There is something to tell there, but you don't need – you can make it a little bit more subtle and still get the point across. And, and it sounds like – and it looks like a lot of the stuff you've been involved in has been my audience is intelligent. They can get the point beneath what I'm saying, and they don't need to be blatantly bashed over the head. And I think it lends for better storytelling than – just just pushing it all out from front street and 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 using your your phrase again to hit to hit people in the head with it right it's from from and i want i want to switch because obviously this all kind of leads up to you know detective allegorical and things like that um the killing joke which you co co-authored yes and, and wrote and was a huge part of now obviously i've i and ernie both we both seen the movie um the animated film and I believe Ernie, you read the comic, right? I read the, I don't I read think the I... first run comic, and I also had the the graphic novel. Okay, so he's he's read the original comics. I read. I only saw the movie. Yeah. How did you go into writing the novelization, basically, of that graphic novel? Given how dark it is, given a lot of the themes in it, and what was your audience? Or what were you really re- reaching for with that book? Well, um, as uh... As anyone knows, the, the you know the original. I have the original graphic novel as well, but but I hadn't read it in you know many years. I think right whenever it, it I guess initially came out in 1988. Yeah, it was 88 uh, or 89 when I read it. Yeah, and and it's short. You know, it's it's not even 50 pages, and it purports to tell you among other things, it purports to tell you uh, the origin of the Joker, uh, which actually, but it even and even in that version, that more and Boland did, which was actually 
a retelling of a, of a of a more um, older version that I think Dick uh, Dick Sprang did uh, of of uh, the Joker as the Red Hood, etc. Um, so when when we got the gig, when Krista and I got the gig to do the novelization, I think because at this point in time, and, and by the way, we we specifically set our 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 book in the same time period. We specifically set our book in 1988, but we did something that uh, more and Boland didn't do. We, the ARPANET was around then, right? The forerunner to the internet. And so we used that and we used certain other things that weren't used in the, uh, in the graphic novel in telling our sort of fuller version, because we knew we couldn't just tell the graphic novel story because that's, it wasn't enough there. So we had to build in a lot more uh, story seeing Barbara Gordon as Batgirl, seeing, seeing her and Batman work together, some other things, some of which, you know, you see in the, uh, in the animated version. Um, and I, and, but one of the great things I think about getting the gig now, as opposed to maybe years, uh, uh, several years in the past, there's been, you know, a, a more, um, freer, interpretations of Batman or the Batman mythos, right? From Gotham, the TV show, which is essentially, you know, about uh, James Gordon <laughs> to uh, the various animated Batman uh, shows that, that, that there's been on. And so we were able to sort of um, in a certain kind of way, like in a, like in a menu pick and choose some of the best elements uh, from that. So for instance, our Alfred, in um, the book is the is the badass uh, ex-SAS uh, Alfred uh, that you see well that you see in Gotham as well as you in one of the uh, one of the animated versions he was that he was that character as well um, our Batman Batman is sort of always kind of Batman uh, but but still at all we were because you know we could certain take certain elements again from like I believe it was the 90s uh, Batman, the animated show, which had the kind of the sort of Art Deco sort of retro look, right? Where you have the um, uh, Gotham Police Department had the uh, patrol dirigibles and you had uh, cars that looked like they were out of the 50s uh, alongside cars that looked like they were even more, uh, you know, modern cars. And so, so we, we, were, we were able to like fool around with that. Uh, so like, for instance, on Gotham, you would have... Um, flip cell phones but you wouldn't have smartphones or, or you would have or the cars all the cars on gotham look to be you know from the 1980s right even though right. you have certain certain elements that were more modern and so i think so that so having that kind of um having again having had that more freeing up of what you could do in the in the batman universe we were able then to pick some of those elements for our story even though again as i said we set our story in 88 specifically we're using the arpanet as the, as the vehicle that Joker is going to now, you know, broadcast these images to to drive uh, Commissioner Gordon mad, uh, and and we and we could just do a lot more subplots and backstories and and because uh, uh, Bullock Harvey Bullock the the the, the uh, sloppy grizzled cop uh, in uh, in the Batman stories has always been kind of an interesting character uh, to my mind. I, I was. A, in my part of the book, I was able to use him uh, in this kind of interesting subplot way uh, that I thought was uh, interesting and 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 made him a, made him a more fuller character. So I, I guess that's all to say is that because we came along at the time we came along now to be able to do this book, 
um, we weren't as hemmed in, I think, by uh, what's the word I want? I guess by the uh, orthodoxy of the of the of past Batman efforts. Even though, of course, we had to have our outline approved not only by our our uh, by the Titan editors, but obviously in the end, they also had to be approved by uh, the folks at DC. Ooh, did you have any run-ins with them at all with DC with your with your outlines at all? Did they come back with you with any like maybe not so much of this and maybe a little bit more of that or yes yeah there was definitely some of that and for a while for the first couple of uh, iterations uh, uh, honestly it seemed like I don't know who the heck they were showing it to over at DC but it didn't seem to me that it didn't seem to me or Chris that they were showing it to anybody in the comic side so I don't know who the heck was giving us notes at first point at the first time because some of the notes just made you know, really not much sense. And, uh, and so we would push back. We would actually push back on that uh, and tighten to its credit, back us up. And, uh, and, but we would say, why? You know, we wouldn't just say, well, no, we're not going to do it. We would say, well, you know, if you look at it this way and, and, and we try to, you know, offer the logic of why it is that we thought the story should be this or this element should be in, in the story. And then at some point, um, man, we finally got, Somebody, somebody over there finally read it who, who understood what we understood what we were trying to do, and also understood what you know was in the what was in the the canon, the the massive uh, you know Batman canon. Uh, and once that kind of got underway, although some of the notes they gave us, a couple of the notes they gave us, I have to say, were good. We we did pay attention to those, um, but once that sort of happened, uh, it was it was definitely uh, smoother smoother sailing. Man, because I, I think back of that whole story, like the first time I read it, because it was actually referred to me, and this guy said, look, whatever you thought about Batman before, forget it. Read this book. It'll totally yeah. change your view of, like, that whole scene, right? right and right. really, it really got to that point, and there were there were parts where I was like, you know, the Joker, Joker has some points here. Like he, he was trying to prove some points through that story, and uh, and I was like, it's a lot more. There's a lot more depth in that, and that's what I noticed about that iteration of the Joker, um, as far as like his whole, you know, the Arthur Fleck backstory. Right, right. You know, and, and I was like, maybe maybe everybody is just that one bad day, you know, from <laughs> like totally like flipping out and just seeing the world differently, and. Yeah. Uh, you know that that one, that one changed my view of like what I chose to read from that point on. Like, oh, I, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. It's it's kind of the perfect time for it too because you have the Joker seems to be a fascination with, and it's it's kind of weird. It's like okay, is it actually a fascination with people or is it a fascination with the movie industry trying to figure this out and they're just pushing yeah. content? It's always hard to tell, but it's it's a perfect timing because the Joker movie that's going to be coming out is also kind of an essay of that one bad day concept from the Killing Joke as well, where it seems like at least from the trailers. You know, that he had this series of bad events and he just kind of went off the rails and it could be you. It could be anybody. Um, Do you now you have another graphic novel, obviously, that you're really big into that I feel could be in a similar vein of just those one bad days, which is the the bebop um, novel. So give me. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that, because that has an interesting flavor where it has a lot to do with jazz, or at least in the feel of it. It does. And. uh, Interesting too. It's it's a, it's another uh, excursion uh, 
uh, into the past. In this case, it's uh, uh, the late 50s in New York City. And I'll say that, yeah, sort of jazz, the Red Scare, uh, uh, race relations, uh, creators' rights, uh, all sort of uh, uh, are at play in the uh, in the story. And essentially, the um, the bebop barbarians are these three characters who are friends, and um, they are they're not duplicates of, but they are inspired by actual three uh, real life. Uh, people, um, the real life people were uh, Jackie Orms, who was the first uh, black woman to have her own syndicated comic strip. Uh, Matt Baker, who people, comics people might know of, was kind of uh, one of the first uh, black artists uh, to work in comics. He worked for the Iger Studio, among other studios. He drew the Phantom Lady, I think, he, and other characters. Uh, and he's sort of credited was with drawing the first. What was considered the first graphic novel uh, is called "It Rhymes with Lust," <laughs> and uh, and he died young. He had a he had a heart ailment, and and uh, although he, he was known to uh, burn the midnight oil, so that didn't help, I guess. And then the third character is based on a, a somewhat more obscure uh, uh, person whose real life uh, was uh, Ali Harrington. Ali Harrington was an interesting guy. He was definitely much more the radical, much more the leftist among the um, uh, of among these three, who in real life did not really know each other, but in the purpose of my story, <laughs> are friends. Uh, and so, uh, Anali was he was a, a uh, more political, but he, he drew these editorial cartoons uh, for the uh, the lefty uh, uh, Daily Worker uh, newspaper, among other things. And he did essays and he covered civil rights events and what have you. So anyway, in in so in my story, as I said, the, 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 the three serve as prototypes for my three main characters and who events then were going to uh, bring them together as well as, of course, pull them apart. Uh, but, in the, but also in the telling of that, we, we take a look at the comic book business in the 50s, particularly at a time when, you know, creators had very few or were, were very few creators had very few rights in terms of keeping or getting a piece of the a piece of the action for characters they created. Well, like, uh, like, uh, I think a name comes to mind now, uh, Bill Finger and, uh, the Schuster, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. And yeah, right. Uh, uh, the, um, um, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. The two guys, Jerry Siegel, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, right. the guys great Superman, but that's, you know, that's even going back. That's even going back further. Right. Cause they sell, they sell those, Rights for what 127 bucks or whatever it was 127 133 bucks. Yep. Uh, now they get they get a job at the comic book company at DC Comics, right? They're they're writing and drawing the character they created, but they never saw the money in terms of like, you know, even they were doing movie serials then. They did the radio stuff, lunch boxes, you know, toy whatever, right? They never saw a piece of piece of the pie, you know. I mean, well, that's not quite true, right? Because it was in the 70s when they when they rebooted Superman to do the that, that first big budget uh, movie, and because of people like Neil Adams and others who've been championing their cause, who've been championing the cause of creators' rights in general, uh, Warner's was kind of shamed into, uh, I think they gave him some, essentially kind of a pension. Uh, I think at that point, Schuster was legally blind, and I think uh, Siegel was like living in, his, in a room in his brother's house. Uh, 
so so there you go. Yeah, because uh, also it was a uh, Bill Finger who originally came up with the idea for Batman, I think, and Bob right. Kane, and he was working for Bob Kane. So like the same situation, like he was getting paid to do this ghost work, but he never got any of the credit. And, 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 you know, and, you know, and, you know, there's a great, you know, there's a great story. I mean, this is not me. I mean, it's been documented in several books. Uh, so Kane, Bob Kane also signed one of those contracts, right? Like Siegel and Schuster did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. And whatever, I, whatever, I think, was it what they just called National PR? Whatever they were called before they were called D.C. So at, at the time when they had to, to redo um, contracts, uh, Kane says... He wasn't 18 when he signed the contract. Well, he actually was, but he knew that because, you know, his, his folks were, he was actually born in some, I don't know, small town up in the steppes in Russia. Right. And so he knew that, and they, you know, he grew up in the Lower East Side, but he, but he knew that there was no way um, DC Comics were going to go try to find his real, his birth certificate. So he, he, so that's why it always had that little box that says created by Bob Kane, because Kane was one of the few guys early on who actually did get a piece of the pie. Yeah, because as a kid, I even saw the name Bob Kane, and, and I was like, right. who's that? And my dad was like, oh, yeah. that's the guy who came up with Batman. That's right. But, right. but like I heard years later, he had a, you know, he had a little help with that, of course. Right. And I right. think, uh, I think they gave that family due credit, I think, with the, I want to say it was the Batman v Superman movie. Oh really? I, yeah, finally, Bill, Bill Finger finally got some some love. Yeah, he finally got some right. love, man. But he was <laughs> long gone. Like it, like his right, story right. was very tragic after right. after all that. Oh, I could. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I can well imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No, but I wanted to ask you about the period that you talk about, specifically like the music genre, jazz. Are do you listen to jazz at all? Or yeah, no, I'm a big. Yeah, I, I, I'm a. I'm not as big a jazz head as a couple of friends of mine, but, but yeah, I dig jazz and, and, you know, try to go here at lives now and then and, um, try to keep up with some of the new folks coming on the scene. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, no, I've, I've always been, I, I guess p- partly because of, uh, you know, sort of growing up with it in, in, in my household. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I've always, I've always, uh, yeah, I've always dug it. I've always swung, swung, swung to the beat, I guess is the way to say it. Is what do you think is your reason why like jazz kind of like fell away from like the spotlight? Because to to be honest, isn't it like the last true like pure American like creation is jazz? I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I suppose rap has some of that to contend with as well. You know, or says some of that. Um, yeah, but it's certainly well. Yeah, I mean, I think it ebbs and flows, right? I mean, you're right. I mean, certainly jazz has been bigger in the past, but it's. But it has, you know, it has these little um, resurgences, I guess that's the way to say it, right? Uh, uh, you know, that, that sort of rise and fall. Uh, but, you know, it's, you know, it's it's music you can't just, I mean, you could have it playing in the background, but jazz kind of demands attention, you know what I mean? And and it's not, you know, it's not bubblegum, it's not a pop tune, and I got nothing, and I got nothing against pop tunes, I like pop tunes as well. But but jazz sort of demands that, you know, particularly, and, and bearing in mind, as the title talks about, you know, bebop was a kind of hard driving, you know, take no prisoners kind of jazz because some of these guys were uh, reacting to coming out of World War II were reacting to what they considered to be swing music, which they thought was just getting to be too popular, was th- which they thought to be the bubblegum music of their day. And they're like, no, 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 
we're gonna, we, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're serious about being musicians. We're serious about this sound. We're serious about trying to find the sound, and this is what we're gonna do. And so, guys like Dizzy Gillespie, uh, you know, uh, uh, Miles Davis, you know, these cats, man, are like, no, no, no. Here's this is what we're gonna do, and we're just gonna drive it and drive it and drive it. And if you dig it, cool. If you don't dig it, you know, get on because we're gonna do this thing. And so, I mean, that's what I like about it. In that, you know. It doesn't take any prisoners. Oh yeah, I, I think I think what I like about like jazz, like the really good jazz, I have to listen to it on vinyl though. I have to hear yeah. the snaps and the pops, you know, as you don't drag across the the record, you know. Right. I have to have. I can't listen to it on CD. I can't. Do it, well, apparently, and now I don't know. Again, you know, who, who knows? I saw this on the internet, so it must be true if I saw it on the internet, right? Anyway, oh, uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I saw something. I saw something on my Facebook feed the other day that said that in uh, 2018 that that vinyl outsold CDs. I, who knows if that's really true? But Ooh, but it is, it is starting to see that these kids, these young kids, are, are you know getting back into vinyl. So. <laughs> I got to say, though, I, I can't totally disregard that statement because, like, near a comic book near us, there is a vinyl record store, and yeah. it's got wall-to-wall, and it's doing business. It's got – it's it's a, it's a the place where it's at, it's a hard place to get really good business, and they're, they're selling. They got all kinds of weird stuff in there, and it's like, okay. Because yeah. yeah. I mean, I, the experiences I've had with jazz has always been live, like – yeah. I went to Chicago a year or so ago with a friend of mine, and we went to like legit, you know, classic jazz clubs. Right. And you're there with the audience, and you're there with the sound, and it just kind of fills the room. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. And I'm not like a connoisseur of jazz at all. And I was like, yeah, I can appreciate this. Right. right. You know, so you don't have to be that high level of, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm a connoisseur. I know all the players. I know all the things, but you can still enjoy it. But exactly. it is that live experience. That's right. Exactly. Well, it, um, we're going to get back to more of this because I want to talk about what comes next for you. But I do want to do a quick commercial break here. Just real quick to thank a couple of our sponsors. First off, I want to thank Anchor because, well, let's be honest, they're the ones we're playing it on. So if anybody's listening to us, thank, thank, they can thank Anchor too. And in addition, because <laughs> that's that's where we get our stuff launched everywhere under the sun. And, of course, I do want to thank Podcoin who does do a massively great job of promoting us, getting us out there to the listeners. Um, we couldn't do it without them because they – they get us in front of people and people are like, let me check this out. And that's where we get the audience. So we want to thank those two guys here. Short commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about jazz, more about comics, and more about what comes back with our very special guest, Gary Phillips. Seamless transition. <laughs> All right. And we return. Gary, I got to say, you are a little bit into everything, but at the core of a lot of your stuff, it does seem to be a lot of crime drama and a lot of great detective stories and real stories. You know, you dabble in the superhero stuff, obviously, but would you say a lot more of your content is the true crime? And have you had a favorite of those that you've written? Yeah, I, I don't know so much as it's true crime, but it's certainly. It's certainly crime, uh, certainly crime fiction that you know, in some ways, you know, obviously then draws on uh, actual incidents, draws on uh, you know uh, stories that that exist uh, uh, out there, uh, whether it's uh, uh, you know, uh, I was just thinking about what Tarantino did with um, 
the Manson family stuff in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where, you know, you just sort of essentially subvert actual history uh, <laughs> to your will. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I saw a couple of points <laughs> in that movie. I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> the whole thing uh, uh, kind of blew up in his face, though. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, so, you know, so I guess well, uh, the question is, I mean, you know, uh, whatever is whatever is the thing in front of me is like the, my favorite thing. But but, um, you know, I because I came on the scene in the 90s and because my first novel is actually set to, to the point, to the question, my novel, my first novel is called Violent Spring. And it's actually set in the aftermath of um, the 92 uh, riots, civil unrest here in Los Angeles, which arose out of the uh, Rodney King uh, verdict, because part of my background has been I was a community organizer and this and that. So I, I knew some of the players in that and, and what have you, and I thought, well, you know, I I, I have some sense of uh, a kind of different view from of uh, from the inside of some of those incidents that that uh, led up to the to the. Uh, conflagration and then, and then post that and I thought but I thought that I could still tell it in an entertaining way through the through the really the point of view of this private detective uh, my, my detective Ivan Monk um, so I guess in certain ways I mean that helped to um, solidify maybe it's not quite the word but it was still my first novel that I had written a previous novel that never got published but it was still my first novel to really get published actually then got optioned by HBO it was never made but it was still a kind of interesting uh, adventure adventure in Hollywood. Um, so, in, so in a lot of ways, I guess, you know, obviously I look fondly on that, on that period as the kind of, um, launch of my career or my so-called career, I guess. Yeah. No, no, it's a career. It's a career. It's not so-called. Yeah, it's a career. It's something. Well, and, and, uh, I wanted to ask you a question, but, uh, but he got, but Robert kind of went into the, to the back to your crime fiction, which, which is something we should all be talking about, but I'm still stuck on the whole jazz thing. So I wanted to ask your opinion on something like, yeah. what would be the ideal, like jazz, like whether it be like an album or whether it be an artist, if I wanted to like put on to like impress a lady. What would that be? Oh. oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. There we go. Well, I don't know, Ernie. I, I, I've been married a long time, so I, I don't. I have no perspective on that at all anymore. <laughs> You're uh, no longer a player, sir. <laughs> no player. I, only, only in my mind, and only, only on the page. Only on the page. Uh, that's you know. That's a, well, of course, but you, you could. Well, you could never go wrong with the classic stuff, right? So you, you know, kind of blue, or birth of the, birth of the cool. By Miles Davis, kind of blue by Ooh. Miles Davis, right? Or any, or frankly, anything by uh, Sonny Rollins, uh, 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 Way Out West, all that stuff, man. You know, I mean, because that would just show, you know, oh yeah, he knows what he's talking about. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, so if that, I could just fake it through that, right? That's just... right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you kind of let in a little bit of the personal life. So you, so you've been married for a while, huh? Oh, I've been, yeah. Oh yeah, we we have a uh, how old is that boy now? I have a, a grandson that's four and a half. Nice, nice. Yeah. Wow, yeah, he's a he's a hoot. Any anything anything that you've learned from like being around the grandson that kind of like changed you a little bit? Well, other than you know the old uh, the old adage about you know what is it? Uh, youth is wasting on the young. 
uh, is so true that 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 right that if in you know that if in the movie in the movie or the or the comic book, you know, if you if you as the old man then could somehow, you know, either switch, you know, I wouldn't want to rob the kid of his youth, but somehow or another, you know, get find that get your youth back, right? You know, the what is it, the Freaky Friday, this you know, switching bodies thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I mean. It, because you would to know what you know now, and then to be able to then somehow go back. I mean, it would just be it would be astonishing. Of course, it would just be it would it would blow your mind. But then you would probably then lead a life of excess, and then and then die young anyway. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> you kind of screwed so, either way. You kind of screwed either way, which is good. I suppose <laughs> that's good. That, 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 that's as it should be, right? That's as it should be. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> but I, I just, I, I just sometimes his name is Silas, and so sometimes we just have, I just have such a, you know, it's just kind of interesting, just to, just think of, or just kind of, at sometimes just sort of see the world as he sees the world, right, as he's learning about the world, right, uh, or just learning about things, you know, and just kind of, it's just really nice. It's just to see, to kind of relive that. I mean, with our own kids, of course, but they're grown, and then, but now just to see it through him, through his eyes, as uh, you know, the wonderment, right, the wonderment that each day brings to him, I think is just kind of, um, it's just so joyful. It's just so interesting. Um, you know, and it's fleeting, right? I mean, but he doesn't know it's fleeting and it's okay. You don't have to tell him that because it's, there's, you know, there's time enough for all that. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I noticed yeah. it. I noticed it with my father because I remember growing up my, now my dad was in the military, so he was a sergeant, yeah. very strict, yeah. very orderly, everything else. Now I get older. I have a daughter. She's eight now. And I promise yeah. you, nothing terrifies him more than having to do the girly stuff with with, with my daughter. That's great. That's hilarious. <laughs> and she has That's him perfect. totally wrapped. I'm like, you know, right. you can tell her no. He's like, no, no, I can't. <laughs> right. That's great, man. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. And it's got to be amazing fodder, too, because you're looking at it through his eyes. And you say, talk about that, that every day is a new day. As a writer, you kind of see that. It's got to give you inspiration to kind of okay, what can I? How can I capture this on paper? How exactly. can I That's right. get right. back to this? I mean, have That's you right. found that magic key yet? Have you found that like how do I capture this energy in any way since you've known him? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't quite yet, Robert. I I I have done a couple of stories where it'll be you know an older guy and 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 maybe a nephew or an older guy and his grown son. And so some of that's there, but I am fascinated by the notion of, you know, grandpa and grandson and, and maybe make the grandson a little older, but the idea of like some kind of, you know, cosmic adventure those two could have, I haven't quite, I've, 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 I've messed around with a few ideas and I've put them down, but nothing is quite gelled yet. But, but I, I think at some point I'll get, I'll get there. I mean, I know exactly how the, I know exactly how the, story opens because i'm i'm something of a i mean now i don't really have them around now but i used to be something my dad was a mechanic so i was kind of grew up around cars and i'm something of a car nut but an old car nut right because the new cars are just you know they're just computers and chips and whatever right but and they all look the same to be honest too exactly exactly (laughs) no personality anymore because i know that's another uh, secret hobby of of ernie he loves the classics all right on and uh, (laughs) I, i i know in my in my in my head my and this will be this will be probably the last scene. Not only does how the story opens, but it'll be my last scene in life. I expect that I can I croak, I pass out. Is uh, is, is is Silas at the wheel of like you know some sweet 
you know, late fifties, you know, cherried out, uh, you know, Chevy, uh, or I used to have a 59 Ford Fairlane that me and my dad rebuilt, you know, and oh, I'm sitting in the back seat, you know what I mean? And I'm sitting in the back seat smoking a, a cheap cigar and he just drives me around and I'm just telling him about places that used to be and this and that, you know, and then somehow or this gets us to the, to the adventure, but you know, so somehow from that beginning, I, I, I've got to get us to the to the great cosmic adventure. But you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll get. Maybe I will get there eventually. I don't know. Man, that now that's a story I would I would I would buy. You you already sold me. You already got a customer. You, go. you already got one. That's it. That's, it. that's right. <laughs> it's a great idea because it's such a it's such in that genre that you're talking about where it's it's just the the the. Because when you get to a certain age, you know, and I'm, I have, I have kids that are teenagers myself. Ernie has a daughter who's eight. We all have the kids, and it's like you get to that point where the nostalgia really starts to kick in. I mean, you have a grandson for goodness' sake, so you're kind of you seeing it, and you're like, I want to capture that that essence of nostalgia and share it, you know, with others so they can understand that that feeling or kind of reminisce about their themselves in that in that kind of sensation and and the classic cars and the cigar you got that sense there it's almost like you know the grandfather and the son are like or the grandson are both like detectives up and coming and they right, kind right. of fall into this world of crime and corruption but they still have these these things that they cling to of the past exactly. that they just love right. so much that's 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 a good that's a good start. So are you so you have ideas? Is there actually like a next thing for you that you are going to be working on that's more than just an idea, but you know you're not quite there for it, or is it just kind of you're kind of on a break? No, I've got a couple of things, uh, Robert. I, I'm um, uh, I have a short story uh, that's that's due. I mean, for a, and it's not an anthology I'm putting together, but somebody else's anthology, but. You know, they've asked me to do a story, so I'm do I'm finishing that story. I'll I'll finish that story next week. I've got a novel I started uh, that I then showed the pages to uh, an editor at a you know at a New York New York house, and uh, he liked those opening pages. But I think we both agree that I'll just go ahead and finish the book, uh, and then try to sell it like that, or have my agent try to sell it like that, and then uh, but all that's kind of in. Uh, also in the context now of, um, in my, uh, in my golden years now, I, I have, I, as I said, I've had a few of my, uh, novels as well as a couple of my, my graphic novels have been optioned, uh, for film or TV in the past. And now as it happens, I, I'm going back to my second season of working on a, uh, on a TV show that's on uh, FX called uh, Snowfall and Snowfall is about, uh, crack in the CIA in South Central in 1980s uh, Los Angeles. Oh, I caught the first season. Did you? Yeah. yeah that yeah. great, great yeah. storytelling. Yeah. It is a great, it is a great story. Uh, the late, the late great John Singleton uh, was one of the uh, creators uh, of the show. Uh, and, um, and in fact, the third season is just finished. The season finale will be on, I think next, as we speak uh, next, uh, next week. Uh, and then, um, we're, we're, they brought some of us back, brought most of us back. Actually, some people moved on for other other gigs, but they brought us back now for the uh, fourth season. Wow! So, so what are you what are you doing? Are you writing stories, yeah. or I'm a, staff, I'm a staff writer. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, I've actually I caught an episode of it. And I thought it was, it was a little it was a little heavy for me. Like I had to yeah, take it slow on it. 
Yeah, like, okay, I can watch one, take a break for a a day or two, come back, watch another, but they're just so intense. Yeah, and so, I mean, and that that seems to be a lot of the stuff you really give a knack on telling a story about just people, you know, just their lives and what they're doing. You're just like, still, like, okay, I'm riveted. I need, I need more. This is great. (laughs) So I, I I really have to say, I, I enjoyed the context, like. Like when when that first season aired, I'm like, wait a minute! I remember when all that was going on. Like the whole background of that '80s right. era of like right, right. when everything was exploding, but it wasn't in the mainstream media just yet. Right. You know? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, anyway, it's, so yeah, so it's been it's been a, a very uh, interesting experience uh, at this stage of, uh, of the game for me uh, to uh, you know to have you know, to, to, to be able to um, kind of really, honestly, kind of realize, you know, uh, one of my dreams, which is to say, uh, you know, not only, you know, written books and, and, and comics and, and what have you, but, but to be able to, you know, write something that got, uh, that you can see, you know, uh, portrayed by actors and you see your words in the, in, you know, in the mouths of actors, it's kind of, uh, fascinating <laughs> it's gotta seem a little surreal it's it like is a little surreal. That's, it is. It is. <laughs> that's my stuff i've i did that it's like wow or, or it's like, the best part or the best part is you know we're like uh the episode i co-wrote with uh this young lady uh and uh, natalia mejia and natalia and i are sitting there on set you know uh, a few months ago and then you know but the, so you know they're they're rehearsing in there or they've rehearsed and this and that but then you know things change, right? You know, because the director or the, or the actor may want to do something slightly different with the line or whatever. So then you're kind of thinking like, well, wait a minute, don't touch that. I mean, we worked hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then, you know, that's, just, that's not the process. That's just not how it goes. <laughs> it's, it's like, that's my stuff. Don't, that's don't, stuff. don't do that. Yeah. Don't step all over that. What's wrong with you? That stuff's gold, baby. <laughs> so I, I, I got to ask one thing though. You have, I mean, and I'm sure you've been told this a few times in your life. You have a great voice, Thanks. like yeah. you got a storyteller's voice. Have you ever considered doing anything with that at all, or is it yeah, just you no, rather I, have it in words? No, I've I've, I've done a few uh, voiceover things, and uh, I've read a few. Uh, I guess I've recorded a couple of short stories of mine. I've never recorded. I was going to record this novel of mine, but it just it just takes. Apparently, you know, actually doing voiceover work. I have a fr- I have a buddy of mine, actually, who who not only he he does audio books as a you know voice actor, but he also now directs audio books. And uh, you know, it takes a it takes a fair amount of work and discipline to do them. And may, I think maybe I don't quite have the discipline, but uh, but I do enjoy <laughs> what little forays I've done with it uh, with my voice, which is my which is my dad's voice. Uh, uh, I, <laughs> I hasten to add. Uh, I've had a good time with it. So, uh, but I have thought more recently about, yeah, trying to be a bit more serious, you know, uh, and, and do a little bit more with it. Uh, if only, you know, maybe recording some, some more of my own stuff, uh, which is kind of on tap. My buddy and I are supposed to be doing this project of mine. So, yeah, so all that, all, so I, again, it's in the mix of things or, or, or the bucket list of things that, uh, to, you know, to get done. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, because it's it, it's such a cool concept to to do that. Because I know like like Neil Gaiman's one of the other authors I can think of off the top of my head who literally reads his own stuff, and you're like, right. man, he's got a good voice for his books. I could see you doing the same thing, you know, your short stories or whatever, and just yeah. you're just reading them, and it's just you sitting there reading them, nothing fancy, and it's just like, right. yeah, I'm 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 hooked. All right, let's go, let's cool. let's get more of this going, you know, and then. A lot of times when you do that, a lot of people just go back out and buy the book. You know, it's kind of a a nice little extra market for you. I'm hip. There we go. (laughs) Well, I want to – you have done so much cool stuff. Obviously, um, your book is – and we're going to include the link in the uh, below information on your uh, Bebop Barbarian. So you're going to have a direct link that you gave us uh, to get that book. So you can buy that on Amazon directly through that link. Is there any other places people should go to find your stuff? Well, you know, uh, there's, you know, the, the, there there are still bookstores, so you know, uh, <laughs> you know, so the kill, the Killing Joke, which is was in hardback and now is in uh, trade paper. That's that's still that's still out. Bebop, uh, Bebop's in, in comic book shops and in bookshops because it's in it's in hardback from Pegasus. And, nice. uh, and like that. So, yeah, no, the, stuff, the stuff's around. People can go into a Barnes & Noble and see stuff by it. They actually can. They actually you? can. Wow. Well, and I, I, I'll give up. Since I'm plugging, a, a, quick, yeah. a, a quick future plug. Uh, I guess it'll be out in February or January, February, something like that of next year, uh, is a, a novel, a pulp, sort of a new pulp novel of mine where I reimagine a real-life uh, North Pole explorer, uh, Matthew Henson, who was like, uh, uh, well, he was the only black guy on the expedition, so he never really quite got the acclaim that the others did. But anyway, so Matthew Henson, one of the first men to reach the North Pole, um, is now kind of, in my hands, has been reimagined as a kind of uh, uh, Indiana Jones, Doc Savage uh, explorer, and it's set in the ni- late 1920s, and uh, gangsters like Dutch Schultz show up, uh, Nikola Tesla shows up, uh, Bessie Coleman, the first black woman aviator uh, in America, shows up. So I think it's a lot of fun. It's called uh, Matthew Henson and the Ice Temple of Harlem. <laughs> wow. So that is the name. That's a really cool title. I love it. I love it. Oh, man. Um, well, we'd love to have you back on early next year, right before the promotion yeah, for that, so you can come back on and talk about that a little more in depth. I'll sure send you guys something on it, absolutely. Oh, that'd oh, be fantastic. So. Yeah. yeah. So you see, this is what making friends do. I tell you what, Gary, you have been fascinating. I'm absolutely fascinated oh. by your work. I'm going to buy your stuff. Yeah, I'm going to buy all your stuff that I can get my hands on. This is great. Promote the heck out of you, because this is good stuff. Very cool. Um, and again, great voice for, for uh, audio as well, and Again, if you guys look up Gary Phillips, just look him up. You'll find his page pretty quickly. He has a great hat, too. I just love yeah, the hat. I'm a big hat guy. <laughs> All right. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, Gary and Ernie, because we want to make the ending just as smooth as the rest of the episode. Hit us one time. Peace out. Peace out, everybody. We'll talk to you guys next time.